Now, a few weeks ago, um, we were going through the trial of Jesus Christ before the Sanhedrin and the high priest Caiaphas and uh, all the things that were surrounding that. And uh, I thought, uh, being another communion time now, that we might actually continue that story and uh, how that he was taken from that situation before the the high priests, uh, Annas and Caiaphas. Well, really it was Caiaphas as the high priest, but Annas was his father-in-law and wielded a lot of power at that time. Uh, But uh, the story goes on then, how that they then took him before Pilate and the saga continued. And now for those that aren't particularly familiar with uh, that story that may not have been here on that day, we uh, just to recap a bit, Jesus had been arrested in the darkness of the previous evening. He had, uh, during that evening, been eventually tried and convicted, even though there was no evidence against him to condemn him, and there, was no, there were no witnesses that were able to testify against him. In fact, uh, I think we, we went through that there were actually 24 points uh, of Jewish law that were broken in that trial by the Jews and the high priests and the Sanhedrin and how that the trial of Jesus was in fact totally illegal according to Jewish law and uh, there were a number of parts that were specifically very sensitive and serious breakings of that law. He was eventually found guilty of blasphemy which is remarkable when you think about it that the, the word of God would be found guilty of blasphemy in the eyes of men. And we see that that was uh, uh, ordained, that he would be guilty by a high priest who was so incensed, so moved with with fury and outrage, outrage that we read there that the high priest rent his clothes. In anger, he tore the priestly garments that he was wearing, which again was in fact illegal. It was contrary to the law of Moses that was given by God to Moses. In fact, so much so, that act alone was punishable by death. The high priest should have been, uh, the trial should have been aborted at that time, and uh, uh, the high priest should have been taken and arrested himself and suffered the sentence of death because of what he had done uh, to the, the, the priestly garments that represented the glory of God upon mankind. Now, by this time, by the time that Jesus had been found guilty, it was almost daylight, and uh, we pick up the story as he's being hauled up before the Roman governor, the man called Pontius Pilate. Israel at the time, of course, was an occupied land, and the Romans held sway in that land as part of their enormous empire, the greatest empire that the world had ever seen up until that time. And we can picture in our mind... uh, uh, of the, the astonishing procession that there would have been of the Sanhedrin, the high priest, and all of his cohorts and bodyguards and so on there and everybody in their robes and so on at that time and uh, making their way to the palace of Pilate in the early hours of the morning, probably about 6 o'clock in the morning, uh, the general thinking seems to be. And in that picture in our mind, perhaps we see the, the, San, the members of the Sanhedrin there and the high priest not only clothed in their, their gorgeous robes, uh, but also clothed in self-righteousness and indignation and murderous rage against Jesus Christ. And in the midst of them, this broken figure, a bound man, 
a bruised and injured and bloodied man, a man who had been spat upon and despised by people at that point, a man who had been abused by and uh, they'd, uh, they'd let loose people upon him to vent their anger at that time, and that, of course, was Jesus. And we pick up the story in John chapter 18 and verse 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. This was at the time of the Passover. And they felt that they couldn't enter. The Jews, the high priest, uh, and uh, the other priests that were there at that time involved in all of this, they couldn't enter into the hall of the judgment of the Gentiles because they had already begun keeping of the Passover and they didn't want to be defiled. They didn't want to become unclean. What a farce. What what hypocrisy is in this. In fact, I think we quoted a, a Bible dictionary that said of this man, a Bible dictionary that was written incidentally about 300 years ago where the person read this verse and he said, what putrid hypocrisy. What putrid hypocrisy that they wouldn't enter into the judgment hall of Pilate at this time. Now it would seem as though Pilate had no particular love or respect for the high priest or for the, uh, the religion of the Jews at this time, but he would have been no doubt aware of their, their fanatical nature and how that this could easily get out of hand if it wasn't uh, handled properly and so on. So he goes out to meet them and we can imagine the sight that he saw as he came out of his palace and he looked and he saw that a, a, a prisoner, quite possibly a poor man, we don't really know uh, at that time uh, how he looked there, but, but certainly a weary and a beaten man, a bruised man, and so on there. And he begins his trial of Jesus. And in verse 29 we see that he went out, they wouldn't come in, so he went out. And Pilate went out unto them and said, what accusation bring you against this man? What accusation? Now, we should remember that their aim was to put Jesus to death at any cost. He, he must be found guilty. He must be put to death. The sentence must be given at this time. But technically, they couldn't do that. They, uh, uh, they couldn't issue a, a death sentence upon a person. That was left to the Romans. The person had to be judged and condemned by Roman law, although they had conveniently at other times disregarded that law. In fact, we read through the Gospels and there were a number of times when they did try to stone Jesus to death. The stoning was the Jewish uh, form of execution. And of course, we know in the, uh, the book of Acts, they did do that to Stephen. They completely disregarded the Roman law at that point and at that time. But maybe at this time, they uh, didn't really want to be responsible for the death of Jesus. We have to bear in mind as well that this is only a few days after Jesus uh, had been welcomed into the city as a great hero. Hosanna in the highest. You know the, the story there in Matthew 21 and, uh, and, and throughout the Gospels there of when Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem. So they had to come up with a couple of well, uh, charges against him. They, and they did come up with two. And the first one we read there in verse 30. So, so Pilate had said, what is the accusation against this man? And they answered and they said unto him, 
if he were not a malefactor or a criminal, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. That was the first charge. What an interesting charge that is. He must be a criminal or otherwise we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have arrested him if he wasn't a criminal, was what they were saying there. And surely this would have to be the most ludicrous accusation that has ever come up in any court of law against any person in history. How did, what's, what's he guilty of? Well, he must be guilty of something, or otherwise we wouldn't have brought him to you. After all, we're such good people. And uh, maybe they were thinking to themselves uh, at that time that uh, the pilot's response would have been, oh, of course, he must be guilty. Silly me, <laughs> you know. If you say as a criminal, he must be a criminal. We won't bother with the trial. We'll just condemn him straight out. But of course we know the story that had happened previous to this. They had tried a trial before, before the priests. They had brought in witnesses. Well, they tried to bring in witnesses and they couldn't find any against Jesus. Eventually they even tried to bribe false witnesses. But that failed miserably as well. So instead they said to Pilate, well, look at us. Look at our glory. Look at our robes. Look at our positions. And we say he's guilty. And you can almost uh, uh, hear Pilate saying, what on earth are you talking about? We can't go through with this. So, so they had to try another uh, 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 accusation against him. And I quote, uh, it's not listed here in John, but in the Gospel of Luke, after they said this, it says, and they began to accuse him saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation, this is in Luke 23, and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar or to pay Roman taxes, saying that he himself is Christ a king. So the second charge they came up with was sedition, was rebellion against the Roman rule and against the Caesar. Now what proof did they have or did they offer? Well, firstly, they said there that he forbade to give, tribute, to give tribute to Caesar. He forbade people, he told people not to pay their Roman taxes. And he set up himself to be a king against Roman authority. Now, this obviously was wrong. In fact, the same people making these accusations of him encouraging people not to pay tribute to Caesar were the same ones that were there and heard him when he said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay your taxes. Give a, a, the, a, go through the, 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 the natural realm and, and, and take care of the natural things and so on. Jesus never, ever spoke about disobeying any ordinance of man. He never preached sedition. And when someone uh, uh, came forward with a sword, we know the story there, when he was betrayed that night, they came forward with a sword and used it. And his response was, put that away. We don't use swords. This isn't a physical battle. We're not fighting against the Romans. We're not fighting a, a natural battle there. If he really was going to cause rebellion, the fight would have started then. But he said, no, that's not what it's all about here. And there were times when, when people even clamored to make him a king. When he, he produced food, for thousands of people out of nothing. That was the thing that really turned them there. If we read uh, in John that when he did that, uh, that uh, when Jesus perceived that they would come out and take him by force to make him a king, 
to make Jesus a king, that he departed again into a mountain himself alone. He had opportunity then to be made a king in the eyes of the people, but he didn't do it. Jesus was no rival to Caesar, and they knew that. They knew that that's what he was like. They knew his nature and uh, what he was doing and uh, what it was all about and so on. We read in verse 31. Then Pilate uh, said unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. And the Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. And here we come and see in the summary here the heart of the matter, the truth of the matter, that no matter what, we want him dead. We want him gone. And he had to die the Roman death. We're going to read there that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake signifying, signifying what death he should die. He, was, he had to die the Roman death. If he had died the Jewish death, capital punishment, it would have been being stoned to death. However, the scripture had already decreed in the, elsewhere in the Gospel of John, we read that he would be lifted up so that he might draw all men unto him. In John 3, we read that as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He had to be lifted up upon the cross. And so we go on then uh, to uh, uh, read uh, how that then uh, Pilate then goes back into the judgment hall with Jesus and he he begins to interrogate him and begins to question him, particularly about being a king. That was the one area, I suppose, that he had to clear up. Uh, is this man rebelling against Caesar? Is he, is he preaching that? Is he inciting riotous behavior amongst his followers and so on? And so we, uh, uh, we read there in verse uh, uh, 33. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called unto Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Sayest this, this, this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What have you done? What have you done to them? Why are they so angry with you? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. So he spoke about having a kingdom. In fact, I found a quote by Napoleon Bonaparte when he was in exile on uh, uh, St. Helena Island uh, uh, at, uh, uh, towards the end of his life. He spoke about empires, earthly empires. And he said, and I quote, Alexander, that's Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charmaine, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? That's how we viewed his empire, a creation of genius. What did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would still die for him. An empire founded on love will last forever. Not upon force. We're going to read there in verse 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king, and to this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone 
that is of the truth hears my voice. What a wonderful statement there is there that hopefully would encompass every one of us here today in this meeting. Let's seek to be of the truth that we might hear his voice, that we might hear the calling of the Lord and what he would have us to do and how he would have us to live and the, and, and the commitment that he would have us to make there. Everyone that is of the truth hears his voice. And Pilate said unto him, what is truth? He didn't know truth. He was totally out of his depth with truth. And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said unto them, I find in him no fault at all. But you have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? And they cried, then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, not Jesus, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. But we see elsewhere that he was also charged with murder and sedition himself. And so they were crying out for him to be released, not Jesus. Now, uh, there's a, uh, have a few thoughts about that as well uh, for a talk, but I figured we won't fit that in today. We'll do that another day, the story of Barabbas and uh, what that means to us. But we might go over, we're going to come back to John 19 a little later on, so you might want to put a marker there of some sort, but we're going to go back to the Gospel of Luke and see another incident that happened here. Now, the Gospel of Luke few pages back and verse 23 uh, sorry chapter 23 Luke 23 and we see the introduction here of another man a man called Herod Pilate was the governor of uh, Judea and particularly Jerusalem and Herod uh, who was uh, uh, it seems as though a descendant of uh, Esau uh, he was in charge of Galilee now Jesus of course was from Galilee and so uh, there was an overlapping of jurisdiction here, even though the events happened at Jerusalem. And we read in uh, verse 2 of chapter 23 of Luke. This is now it's the same set of circumstances here. And uh, we just read there uh, the accusation that was given there about him setting himself up to be a king. Uh, verse 2, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews, as we just read there? And he answered and said, Thou sayest it. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirred up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, and beginning from Galilee to this place. Now when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that that was so, and that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. Hopefully Herod will sort this mess out from uh, Pilate's point of view there. Who himself uh, also was in Jerusalem at that time, no doubt for the Passover feast. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him for a, for a long season. He'd been waiting a long time to meet this Jesus because he had heard many things of him and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Now we're introduced here to this man called Herod in this story. And Herod was no stranger to the things of God being preached. He had had dealings before this time with, uh, with a man called John the Baptist. He was the one that the Bible says was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. It was a voice that was eventually silenced by Herod. But to start with, Herod was strangely sort of moved by that. And in fact, a quote here it says, For Herod uh, feared John, knowing that he was a just man, 
and an holy one, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So he began to uh, be moved by the preaching of John the Baptist, Herod was. He was uh, even influenced in some of the decisions, no doubt, that he made until it got a bit close to home. And we read there that Herod got involved with his own sister-in-law. And uh, John said, that's wrong. You can't do that. In fact, we'll read about that. We'll go back to uh, Matthew chapter 14, just to set the... So we're going back and back here. Uh, hopefully we're going to find our way back to the future. <laughs> um, Matthew 14. And this is a story here of John the Baptist dealings with Herod. In verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus, and he, and his, uh, he said unto his servants... This is John the Baptist. He was, he'd heard of Jesus, and John the Baptist, as we'll see, had already been killed at this stage, but it then recounts, goes back itself, uh, to, to go through the story there. And he thought that this Jesus was a reincarnation of John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist, for he is risen from the dead. Therefore, mighty works do show, themselves in, show forth themselves in him. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, unto Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he, because uh, Philip was still alive, I should point out at this stage, um, uh, and it, when he would have put him to, uh, and when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him, John, uh, to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them, and it pleased Herod. Wherefore he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being instructed by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head on a charger, on a plate. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, uh, and for the, uh, which, uh, them which sat her with him at meat, he commanded it to be given to her. And so he sent and beheaded John in prison. And then we go on to read there. And uh, uh, the, the head was brought there to fulfill his oath at that time. So Herod was a weak and a cruel man. He had opportunity to seek righteousness and holiness. He had a fair bit of contact with John the Baptist and with, therefore, the word of God. But he spurned it. He gave in to his own weakness and he gave in to pressure from others. And he couldn't, uh, uh, instead of walking away from all of that, the things of God, he ended up persecuting them. In fact, just like his father, his father was Herod the Great. And we read about him in Matthew 2, how that Herod the Great sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem from two years old and under at the birth of Jesus to try and eliminate Christ from the world at that point. And Herod was not just familiar with John. We read there that he had heard many things about Jesus. In fact, he had heard things in his own household about Jesus. And we know that because uh, 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 he, a man is introduced to us in the Gospels there, a man called Chuza. Hands up those who have heard of Chuza. Yeah, a couple of people have heard of Chuza. Okay, we'll go and read about Chuza in uh, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. An interesting little twist here. It lists off some of the disciples here, and it particularly lists in the early part of the chapter the women that were following Jesus. 
And in verse 3, after we read about Mary Magdalene, we read about Joanna. Joanna was the wife, this is uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 3, Joanna was the wife of Chusa, who was Herod's steward. Herod's per, uh, per, uh, like a, a personal uh, uh, servant, butler, administrator over the household. This man Chusa and his wife was one of the disciples, was following Christ faithfully and loyally. Her name appears in a couple of other parts in, in the Gospels, particularly at the resurrection time. And uh, we read about this situation here. So the story of Jesus was well known to Herod. And here we see Herod in the, his, all his pomp and ceremony and so on there, he has Jesus finally standing before him at the time of the trial there. And we read there that Herod wanted to see a miracle. I want to see a miracle. He hoped to see a miracle done by him. Not to glorify God. Not that it might inspire him to repentance or anything silly like that. But he wanted to see a circus act. He wanted to see something really special, a performance. That's what he wanted to see of Christ. We'll go back to uh, uh, Luke 23, I think, where we were. Luke 23, before we go back to the Gospel of John. So that was how Herod had had dealings with Christ and the Gospel before. Uh, in, we just read there, he hoped to see many, a, a miracle done by him. And in Luke 23, verse 9, we read, Then he questioned with him many words, but he, that's Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and then sent him again unto Pilate. So Jesus answered him nothing. And Herod, no doubt infuriated by this, he, he let his men of war loose on Jesus. And then we read that amazing verse there, verse 12, and the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends. Together. For before they had enmity between themselves, there had been division between them, but they found themselves now with a common friendship, the friendship of sin and antagonism towards Jesus Christ. How lovely to have friends. Well, these were friends you really wouldn't want to have. Luke, uh, sorry, uh, Gospel of John, chapter 19 again, verse 1. So we're picking up the story now of the trial before Pilate. He'd been to Herod and now come back again. And then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him or gave him the Roman whipping, which was enough to kill most people. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and said to them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. And then came forth Jesus, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. And the chief priests therefore and the officers, when they saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said unto them, Take ye and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. This is actually the third time that Pilate had said to them, I find no fault in him. This man's not guilty. Third time he'd said it to them in this account here in the Gospel of John. 
Jesus had been tried and tested above any trying and testing that there had ever been before Pilate. And Pilate came up and said, this man is the spotless lamb of God. He didn't say it in those words, but that's what he was meaning. He's done nothing worthy of death. I find no fault in him. And you can look and look and look till the cows come home, till you're blue in the face, till the cows are blue in the face. You can look and look and look. You'll never find fault in Christ. You can look for all eternity for fault there and you'll never find it. He's the spotless lamb of God. And we read in verse 7 there. And the Jews answered him, saying, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die. How's this? Because he made himself to be the Son of God. And then we read in verse 8, And when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid. What an incredible thing we read here. Before the, all the glory and the might of Pilate, who, who had in his grasp all the authority of the greatest empire the world had ever seen, Snap my fingers, Pilate could have done, and, uh, and, and that was the end of a nation, let alone an individual. And before him stood a man who was battered and bruised and bleeding. And we read of that confrontation there, and Pilate was afraid. He was afraid of Christ who stood before him as a broken and beaten man. According to the Strong's Concordance, the word afraid there means to be alarmed, to be in awe of, to be sore afraid. To fear exceedingly. He was terrified of Jesus Christ standing before him at this time. And he went again into the judgment hall and he said to Jesus, Whence art thou? Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And then Pilate said unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and I have power to release thee? And Jesus answered, Thou could have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever whoever makes himself to be a king speaks against Caesar. And when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought uh, brought Jesus forth and sat in the judgment seat uh, in a place... uh, that is called uh, the pavement, but in the Hebrew, uh, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour. And he said unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said unto them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, What a cop-out this is. We have no king but Caesar. What a sellout. We have no king but Caesar. And they delivered him, then they de- uh, delivered he. Uh, him before, uh, uh, therefore unto them uh, to be crucified. And they took Jesus and they led him away. And he bearing his cross uh, went forth unto a place that is called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. And two others with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. Now, we might pick up this story at a later date here from this point onwards. But I'd like to just... uh, Perhaps summarise here and finish. Uh, perhaps just asking a question here. We may have, you may have noticed that uh, during uh, reading of the scriptures here that there were a couple of times when it said that Jesus remained silent. And uh, we may wonder about that. Pilate actually said to him at one point, Why? What have you done? What have you done? 
Now, Jesus could quite truthfully have answered that question. What have I done? I'll tell you what I've done. I healed the blind. I healed the lepers. I made the lame to walk again. I healed Lazarus, who'd been dead for four days, and I raised him from the dead. I fed thousands upon morsels of food. You want to know what I've done? How long have you got? I've done a lot of things, but he didn't do that. He remained silent. And I just wonder whether we might might just turn to Isaiah 53. You all knew that we were going to end up there, didn't you? Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12. This is a great prophecy of Jesus Christ and particularly his trials and tribulations and uh, what was going on at this time. Written 700 years before the event. And his silence was even prophesied. In verse 7 we read perhaps that he... uh, He opened, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, but he opened not his mouth. The great prophecy of Christ there, he opened not his mouth. Um, He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. In fact, we read in the book of Psalms, for the dogs have compassed me and the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. But down in verse 12 we read, and halfway through the verse, I would, uh, uh, it talks about... um, Uh, Well, we'll come back to the early part there, but halfway through the verse we we read there, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, although Jesus was innocent, and although there was no fault in him, as Pilate found, he stood as a guilty one. He stood as a sinner before the judgment seat. Because he stood in your place and in my place, And the sinner has no answer to the accusations that may be against them, particularly from the throne of God. We read of the ridiculous charge that was against him. If he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him here. And in a sense, he was a criminal. He was a sinner. Not that he committed any sin or committed any crime, but he was covered in sin. He was covered in your sin and in my sin. It was dripping off of him. At this point. And so it had to be that he would offer no defense because he was numbered with the transgressors. Earlier on in this verse, we read here about the portion that would be given as a result of this sacrifice and the spoils that would be divided to people as a result of this sacrifice. The spoils were the, the prizes that were run in a victory. And uh, uh, you conquered an enemy, you took their possessions as a spoil. And so there were prizes that were run at Calvary. And he shared them, as we read there in verse 12 there. He divided the portion with the great and and divided the spoils with the strong. And the spoils, we think about the spoils that are taken perhaps in a natural situation. Up until this point, we think about the empires that are ruled of Assyria and of Babylon and Rome and and the the great uh, empire of the the Greeks and so on there. And when they invaded countries, uh, they would end up with great possessions of of prisoners uh, and uh, all the captives that would uh, end up enslaved and uh, giving their lives even as sport for for the victors and so on there. And maybe we could say that their spoils, uh, uh, the spoils of their victories, the natural victories, was that was that liberty would be taken captive. But of course, the victory won by Jesus Christ 
at Calvary is an opposite to that. We read in the scriptures that captivity was taken captive. That death was put to death. That the destroyer was destroyed. The spoils of the the sacrifice of Jesus, of the victory of Jesus Christ. And we think about Jesus there. That by him were all things. And that for him were all things. All things were created by Christ. He breathed out stars. Yet his greatest glory, his crowning glory, was his dealings with mankind. His dealings with you. And we read in the early part of the verse there, or, uh, sorry, we, uh, uh, where did we get to there? Yeah, just the, 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 the phrase there before the, the part about being numbered with the transgressions, he poured out his soul unto death. He didn't just pour out his blood upon the earth or even his life, but his soul, every fiber of his being, every part of Christ was poured out, was given at Calvary. And when he was emptied out of everything, he cried out, it is finished. It's done. I can give no more than I've given. We should consider him, the Bible says. Consider him. He's the one that the angels bow down before. And we read here about him pouring out his soul unto death. It was not necessary for him to do that for himself, but it was essential for us that he should do that because we were condemned without this. We'll just finish off in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Hopefully we haven't gone too long here. 1 Peter chapter 3. And verse 18, 1 Peter 3, 18. There's a particular phrase I'd like to pick up on here. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. And then we read, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, that he might bring us to God. He poured out his soul unto death so that he might bring us to God. Now we, I believe, are in a position now where we need to pour out our soul, as Jesus did, I suppose to death in a sense, the death called repentance. That we need to pour out our soul, whether we're hearing these things for the first time, whether we've made any commitment to God or not, you need to repent. You need to pour that out before the Lord. And even ongoingly, we need to, to be constantly pouring out our soul to the Lord. But not only uh, uh, to death as it were there, but we pour out our soul to trust in him, to obey him, to love him. Let's make sure that that's our calling there. Why? Because Jesus set all this up so that he might bring us to God and that we might live forever. All the people said, Amen.